0: My goal is to empower you with information, inspire you to make changes that fit you and feel 100% supported along the way. So settle in and make yourself comfortable and get excited to learn and take action for a better, healthier, more energized life. All right, friends, this episode is a really good one. So I was able to sit down and have a really energizing, fun conversation with Dr. Kim Daniels. Dr. Daniels is a psychologist and she has training in internal family systems therapy. She's been doing that work for quite a while now and she also is trained in intuitive eating and she has a background in as you'll hear some of her story, bariatric surgery. So she and I have some overlaps, although she has a lot more experience with IFS or internal family systems. We just delved into so many important topics today. I learned so much. So We really cover if you're someone who struggles with intuitive eating or you have clients that struggle with intuitive eating. For the record, I love intuitive eating. I think it's an amazing framework, amazing paradigm. I've found it really helpful personally. And many of my clients struggle to varying degrees with it at different points in their journey. I think this conversation is really going to help you understand yourself or your clients and why they may be struggling too. We're going to cover uh, Kim's experiences with IFS and intuitive eating, how she got into doing this work. I'm going to talk about why she thinks IFS helps people get to the true root of the issue and why intuitive eating paradigm and those principles may not always be necessary. So it's going to help to really dig and answer this question of why intuitive eating maybe didn't work in the way that someone had hoped it did and it all depends on how parts of you or your client use it and we're going to delve into that and it's fascinating yeah. We're also going to be talking about why we do things that seemingly on the surface don't make sense, but when we really understand why parts of us are doing the things they're doing, it does make sense. So the example she gave is how a part of someone might keep them eating to rebel against a parent who had died many years ago, and we think this doesn't make sense, but when we really dig deeper, we can understand it and realize it does make sense. We're gonna be talking about is emotional eating a real thing or not? Is binge eating only in response to restriction Or not We're going to talk about How to work with parts That still want to lose weight And at the end We had a really fun conversation About how Kim and I Apparently both use Creative adult activities To pursue embodiment And authenticity Another fun bonus Is what having a black belt In karate Taught Kim about women And self-defense So it's a long episode I decided not to split it up Because it's oh so good And I just felt like Splitting it up Wouldn't do it justice So I think you're going to love it Listen to the end and as always, make sure you let me know what you think about it. If you are a professional who works with individuals struggling with disordered eating and you're interested in workshops, trainings, and some really exciting community um, connection and support things we have coming down the pipeline, make sure that you sign up to be on our email list at drhondorp.com forward slash workshop. That's D-R-H-O-N-D-O-R-P forward slash workshop. Make sure that you are on the email list because we're going to be launching some exciting things coming in this summer, coming in July, and the only way to know about it is to be on the email list. So make sure you you check us out there. I can't wait to, to see you on the inside. And then as a reminder, this podcast and blog is for informational and educational purposes only and should never be construed as any form of medical or professional advice all right everyone let's dive in all right so welcome back to the motivation made easy podcast i have a very special guest with really cool experiences and background and i just cannot wait to get to know her better and learn today so i have dr kim daniels here who has lots of experience with my new love and obsession internal family systems and also intuitive eating. I found you on, I've, I heard of you from, I believe the one inside podcast interview where I heard you talking about intuitive eating and IFS. And I probably searched those terms to find you. So now you're here <laughs> and it's very exciting. Yay! So thank you. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> it's going to be fun. So yeah. I'd love for you to tell me and the listeners more about your story and how you came to be doing this cool work that
1: you do I would say I've always kind of been interested in eating disorders. I mean it's funny when I think back to you know I have a degree in psychology and um just always knew that I wanted to do that which I always feel like says something about us as children right when we know we want to be therapists at young ages um and I knew pretty young too <laughs> Yeah, well, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not somebody who has the story of having had an eating disorder. A lot of people who go into this specialty, I think do have that story. And it's not that that's not mine. But I was always interested in it because to me, there was always so much of a social cultural piece to eating disorders, especially that I was like a feminist from day one, you know. And so to me, eating disorders were always in part a result of the immense pressure that women especially and certainly men too, but women especially Mm -hmm. feel about looking a certain way and being a certain size. And so, you know, we develop these really horrible relationships with food and our bodies because of that. And and that can turn into a diagnosable eating disorder or disordered eating. So I feel like I was always really interested in that. And I remember when I went to grad school Probably our first semester, I went to a workshop that a local psychologist who specializes in eating disorders was giving on eating disorders. And I remember her saying, you know, men go to the gym to get bigger and women go to the gym to get smaller. And that really struck me. And, you know, that was in 1995. And that still has kind of stuck in my brain. So Mm -hmm. it just really kind of summed it up to me that there's just this huge difference in expectations for women. And that's not saying that men have it easy, because they don't. But it's, you know, so much of this has been historically directed at women. And so going through grad school, it's actually, at least in my program, there was no sort of specialty training for eating disorders in particular. You kind of had to get like practicum placements and an internship. And somehow I never quite landed in those. When I went for my postdoctoral fellowship, the hospital, I was working in their outpatient mental health department, and they started a bariatric surgery program my director kind of came to me and said, hey, they want us to work with them. And you're interested in the eating disorder. So congratulations, this is your job now. <laughs> it was oh, kind of yeah. like, oh, like, I don't know anything about this. I don't know whether this is a good idea. I, like, I don't know. You know, it's like sad. I look back on that. I did that for a long time. I did that for many years. I, like I was really feeding into diet culture with that for sure. And I was doing, of course, this is back in like 2000. This is back before social media and before, you know, really plethora of online resources that we have. Everything that I was researching on the surgery was in medical journals, which of course is incredibly fat phobic. So mm-hmm. it was all about, oh, this is great. Like you're, you're helping people lose weight and therefore you're making them healthy. And it was like, whoa, hey, yay! I'm being helpful to people. And so then, you know, it became obvious that it wasn't particularly helpful to people. And not that it's never helpful to people, because I think there are people whose lives are probably saved because of that procedure. And that's wonderful. And I think everybody has a right to do what they feel like they need to do. But I certainly have seen plenty of people regain every pound they lost and then some. And obviously the focus is on weight loss, weight loss, weight loss, which is just not helpful. Even the people that were quote unquote a success, because success really only means weight loss. Doesn't matter how you get there. Doesn't matter, you know, what consequences to that there might be, but you're a success if you've lost weight. People end up hating their bodies even more so after surgery than they did before they develop eating disorders that they may not have had before. They develop substance abuse problems that they haven't had before. So there's a lot of negative consequences to it. I kind of got out of all of that a few years back when I kind of left the hospital and was in a private practice. And I had someone reach out to me and she said, I have had like every eating disorder in the book and I really need to, to leave my current therapist because she's kind of promoting dieting. And I know that that's not where I need to be. So are you willing to work from a health at every size perspective? And so I looked into that and it was like one of those aha moments of like, oh my God, like this is what I should
0: have been doing all along. And about Uh, how recent was this? I'm just curious.
1: Six years ago, I would say. Then from that, um, I kind of stumbled into intuitive eating, which I Mm -hmm. hadn't really known anything about before and really kind of went wholeheartedly into that, which I love intuitive eating, but it also has its own pitfalls. And so what's weird is that I was already trained in IFS at that point. I went through level one in 2015. I was still doing, you know, like bariatric surgery work, even having been trained in IFS, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me right now, but I was, I would say over the past five to six years really started leading more with the IFS piece and then sort of incorporating, you know, a little bit of intuitive eating with, that, but I kind of feel like if you're really doing IFS, the intuitive eating is just sort of a little added bonus. So I think that for people who are just trying to do intuitive eating without IFS, it's really, really hard. Um, oh, that's and interesting. we can talk more about that if you want to. Yeah, I
0: would like to maybe come back to sure. I want to know more. And yeah, one thing I have a lot of experience in weight loss surgery clinics as well. I worked in one oh. for a number of years. I left my health the healthcare job two and a half years ago. In fact, before I started at that clinic, I had had experience prior in my graduate training in weight management and eating disorders, which is pretty rare. But my graduate training was a research focused graduate training. And so my advisor actually did both eating disorder research and weight loss research, which is you know, interesting. But I had <laughs> sort of a unique perspective. And, and then I have my own personal journey that mm-hmm. factors into all of this too. When I started at the clinic that I was at for six years before I left, the same thing had happened for the therapist that was there. She was just like, do you want to do this? And she had to teach herself about that was just one comment that I that struck me as you're talking about how there are certainly people trained in bariatric surgery sure. from a psychological perspective and how to do the emails. But it makes me think how much for people that do make that choice. It's so many times they're just like. I don't know, here's someone to help you. And my colleague did a great job and did the best she could with the resources. But and yeah, I think I found health at every size, the read the book anyway. Yeah. Not the book, but one of the book names yeah, that every yeah. size when I was at that clinic. But I had learned about intuitive eating prior to coming to that clinic. But anyway, it's just so interesting okay. to hear how people's timelines come together and the aha moments. And I only learned about IFS recently, as you know, because I'm frustrated and angry that I haven't <laughs> learned about it sooner. I'm very angry <laughs> parts that are like,
1: What on earth? How am I not learning about this? I had somebody who just reached out to me recently who wants to work together and she's like, Yeah, and I'm I'm actually in school to become a therapist and she's kind of doing her own IFS uh, therapy. And I'm like, you're so lucky. Like, you're so lucky that you know about that already and that you're starting your career with that, because I don't know about you, but I felt like every theory they were throwing at me in grad school, I was like, either number one, I don't get it or number two, it's just not landing with me. Like it doesn't make any sense to me. And I mean, I guess there's pieces of everything that we can use, but you know, like I'm not a huge CBT person. I mean, I'm not a huge cognitive behavioral therapy person because it just feels it's too, it's too brainy. It's too much in your head, which didn't make sense to me because we're talking about emotions. What are we talking about here? Um, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So many of our approaches do
0: keep us in our head, right? Which I will say I can relate to that. And I had somewhat like, I would get super excited. I'd be like, CBT is the answer. And like, now, act is the answer. And I do right. still like info from act, but the way I was using act in grad school was really consistent with diet culture, yes, but also hustle culture. Like, I'm going to have these thoughts and I'm just going to do it anyway. <laughs> like, it's consistent with my values to push and go. And like, <laughs> I used it in this very like push mindset that like yeah. didn't serve me. And I worked a lot with my overworking push parts like yeah and uh and that's been really helpful right that yeah and so sometimes and- when I first found IFS like I was like I think I did have a critical part of like Sean you always do this you get so excited and just chill <laughs> like I'm like yeah. and so I do have some skeptical parts and I'm still early on but I'm like I don't know it continues to be really useful to me personally which yeah I feel like says a lot and
1: yeah and I was trained in EMDR before I did IFS and it's like I started using it and then I stopped because I it's like that one just felt like it was opening this giant can of worms again not to say that it's not useful because it it certainly can be that that's
0: interesting I don't know a ton I mean I know some but
1: yeah I mean to me it is really is one of the things that can bring up exiles super quickly which of course I didn't know what that meant back then and part of it was in order to really use it obviously you need to have Supervision in it, and nobody where I was working was trained in it. So Mm -hmm. I didn't have Mm -hmm. direct supervision with it. I had a client that I was using it with who was a male client. And it really is, you know, choose the first and the worst memory that we're kind of working on. And you really kind of get in touch with, you know, what are your physical sensations with that? What are sort of the cognitive things that you think about that? And kind of what are your feelings? And then you do the bilateral stuff. And so I was working with this client. And we, you know, we had picked out the memory and we were, you know, and I'm like, okay, do you feel it in your body? Like, how are you feeling? What are you thinking? Whatever. And he goes, why don't you also just kick me in the balls right now? (laughs) That's that's what it felt like to him. And I was like, Mm in that moment, I was like, oh my God, like this is like really heavy duty stuff. And I didn't feel like having, you know, two weekends of training was enough to do it. And again, I didn't have the supervision. So I kind of dropped it. And then yeah. I found IFS and I, and trust me, I went through level one and then I went right into level two and I was like, I'm done. I'm not doing a level three. I'm not getting certified. I am finished. And I know I used it, but I didn't use it with everybody. Yeah. And it was kind of one of those things, kind of like you, like, am I like literally drinking the Kool-Aid and like, whatever, mm-hmm. am I in a cult now? <laughs> <laughs> right. like maybe okay. I'm in a cult now. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's like every time I sort of would get back in touch with people who were IFS therapists, it was like, oh God, this like, this really is just such good stuff. I really started using it a lot more. I went back to, to serve as a program assistant last year for a level one and just getting back in that culture and back in that group, it was like, oh my God, like I need to be using this all the time because it's so incredibly helpful. It's not easy. It really is the thing that works. So I hope you get into a level one soon because I know how frustrating that is. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I hope so too, and I'm feeling more hopeful after we connected about the
1: option. I'm yes.
0: like, oh, this is so <laughs> exciting! So, I know,
1: I know, the best kept secret.
0: <laughs> yeah, highlighting real quick what you said about EMDR, and I, I don't have a ton of training in the different exposure-based um, treatments for trauma, mm-hmm. but it feels sort of similar. That client like just kicked me in yeah. the. Hall. You know, it's like, yeah, right. so intense, just do it, grin and bear it. And like, that's kind of how I've approached a lot of things in my life for myself, but I've never felt like I could, I'm not that type of therapist, but I, I do think there's an element yeah. of like, when you do get someone to emote you know, feeling like mm-hmm. you're helping them, which may or may not always be true. Right. And, and I,
1: think- I think you're absolutely right. We do have sort of this thing about it's got to be difficult and it has to be this sort of catharsis and it has to be this sort of emotional, whatever. And IFS actually says, no, it doesn't. I mm-hmm. mean, there's, there's a lot of pieces of IFS that say, no, it doesn't. But one of them is your parts don't have to tell me anything that you went through. And I, I think mm-hmm. that can be so incredibly helpful for people because people come, And they have parts that are obviously are carrying shame. People who have had therapy before, they've talked about it a million times and they're still sitting with pieces of it that are, you know, that are not healed. And they're like, and they have parts that understandably are saying, I don't want to, talk. I don't want to rehash this. I don't want to talk about this anymore. I always say to them, you know what, I just want those parts to know you don't have to tell me anything about this. Like there is a way of working where it really isn't, you know, we have to kind of go into what are parts and what is the self. It really is. Your parts just need yourself to know what they're experiencing and what they went through and what they're still carrying. I don't need to know any of this stuff. You don't have to say any of this stuff out loud. If your parts need to, that's fine. If they don't, that's fine, too. And that can be so relieving for people. We have these sort of major moments in IFS therapy, but I don't think they're always what people tend to think it's supposed to look like if that makes any sense yeah crying on the floor or whatever yeah 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 and you have to push through it like we don't do that you know like one of the phrases in ifs is yes we get permission and we go at the speed of trust so we don't go anywhere that our protectors are not okay with us going to because there Mm -hmm. will be a backlash you know there will be parts that are like either we're never going back to that person or now I'm gonna eat everything in sight or your firefighters come out in full force when we do that. So we absolutely don't do that. It's very gentle. Yeah. Which is a yeah. very different way that a lot of things work. Even C B T things like, you know, oh, that's an irrational thought. I just mm-hmm. that mean that just makes me cringe. You're telling oh, your yeah. parts they're being irrational and yeah. there's nothing irrational about it. So oh, Yeah, I still have parts that get
0: very frustrated with that being told that's unhelpful. Like I'm yeah wagging my finger right now because right. I was kind of told that by like well-intentioned humans yeah. that just came to come hang out with my daughter right like I was told <laughs> like by very rational logical engineer brain thinking people like yeah that doesn't make sense yeah thinking doesn't make sense and I'd be like that doesn't help me <laughs> no. <laughs> and, and now I actually understand why I also felt like CBT just wasn't grasping the amount of pain that I was in like I felt very yes. un misunderstood by those approaches um yeah because it's so like you said it's so cognitive and but I'm in a lot of pain and you don't you don't get it so I'm not gonna know this is
1: right right (laughs) and that pain is visceral like that pain isn't coming from my brain that pain is sitting in my body like that is visceral and so it just doesn't make sense so if I change my thoughts that changes my feelings I mean I mean on some level yes that can work but not for these really
0: yeah like when stuff is healed underneath there's some role to cognitive restructuring but it feels so sure when you're feeling like really understood by someone and really held by someone then you're like oh okay we're gonna look at this and challenge that a bit the way you're thinking about it cuz we all have
1: thoughts yeah right absolutely absolutely and we do i mean we do some of that in IFS because especially mm-hmm. you know looking at eating stuff you have mm-hmm. you have protector parts that have learned diet culture just like everybody else has and so yeah. we do some CBT and some psychoed mm-hmm. with those parts and sort of say you know what guess what that was a lie all of yeah. that was a lie essentially yeah. You know, all of this is a big money making business Mm -hmm. that is hell bent on keeping you feeling insecure and imperfect and unattractive and all of those things. And that was all a way of making money off of you. And we do have to do some CBT work with parts around those things.
0: And that can be really helpful for sure. Yeah, it makes me think of like this just even the notion of calling foods healthy and unhealthy. Yes. It's like being able to explain because it's so confusing to parts of it us, is. which I think makes a lot of sense. Here's why that mm-hmm. it's not a bad way for some people. They can say that and it's fine, but, but sometimes right. it can really be why is a food healthy or not?
1: And people laugh at me because I always put healthy in air quotes. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> I'm like, I can't even say healthy now without being like, mm because it really keeps us in that dichotomy and that black and white of it's good or bad. It's good or bad. And, you know, we take that to mean I am good or bad, depending on the food choices I'm making. And that's always a joke that I have with my clients. They'll come in and they'll be like, oh, my God, I was so bad last weekend. And I know what's coming with that. And I'm always like, oh, my God, did you rob a bank? Like, what did you do? And they're like, no, of course not. But I was at a party and I had birthday cake, and it's like, oh, well, and <laughs> that's just as bad as like <laughs> robbing a bank. Like, but that's, yeah. how we've been tra- that's how we've been taught to believe that I am a bad person because yeah. I had this food that is friggin' delicious and enjoyable, and all of us should be able to have without feeling guilt or shame. And I ran into this with a colleague of mine. We were trying to, um, we we were trying to put together a proposal for the IFS conference in the fall and she and i were having a hard time talking about it because she's kind of she's a wellness coach and she's really good at what she does the language we were both using was not meshing. And, mm-hmm. it, and it was, you know, we're two people that hopefully kind of know what we're doing. And it was yeah. hard to talk about because yeah. we do have differences on how we see it. It's so it's like diet culture has hijacked every word we use mm-hmm. in reference to these things. And it's like, I don't, I don't even know what to say. I don't, I don't even know how to put it.
0: I don't know how to put it. <laughs> so. I know. It's so true. I already have marketing is already not my strength, but like oh. it just makes it so much harder. And I even know. the name of my business business right like you know wellness and i'm like
1: oh. I, I know. I, <laughs> I know. And I have a hard yeah. time even sort of saying because it drives me nuts when people talk about like, oh, you have to end emotional eating. And I'm like, but you don't. You still get to be an emotional eater because food is emotional and eating is emotional. But you can't, how do you market? Well, it's kind of sort of okay to emotionally eat sometimes. <laughs> like how do you market exactly.
0: that, right? Yeah, you had to have your podcast be named something where people would search it and find it. So right,
1: exactly. <laughs> I know. It's so hard. It's so hard. Yeah.
0: This is maybe a good segue to the question that I can't forget to ask, which is following up on what you said about intuitive eating and the utility, but also feeling like it's sort of a bonus. How do you think about the utility of intuitive eating and IFS as it relates to healing your relationship with food?
1: I mean, again, I think intuitive eating has a lot of great pieces to it. And it really, it blends really well with IFS because it is so focused on tuning into your body. There's a lot of misconceptions about intuitive eating out there. And I remember Mm -hmm. I went through the whole certification process with them to become like a certified intuitive eating counselor. And Mm -hmm. we did like group supervision with Evelyn Triboli, who is one of the creators of it. And I love her. I absolutely love her. So she was talking about the fact that people think that intuitive eating is just this giant free for all. You can eat whatever you want, whenever you want, and nobody cares. And it's not about health and it's not about nutrition. It's not about anything. It's just whatever. And she said, I understand why people think that, because if you look at social media, every post about intuitive eating has either a donut or a cupcake. And I was like, oh, my God, she's right. And I'm pretty sure mine do, too. So we need Mm -hmm. to change that. Mm -hmm. But it really is all about tuning into your body and figuring out what foods work, what foods don't, knowing when you're hungry, knowing when you're full, knowing what foods are satisfying to you, what foods aren't. So that really is the biggest piece of intuitive eating. If you're doing IFS, you're doing that already, figuring out where your parts are in your body. Cause that's like the first thing that we ask when we start working with a part is where do you notice that part in your body? people are already noticing how things show up in their bodies and then of course we can sort of go okay so how does hunger show up in your body how does fullness show up in your body but so many times we have parts that are influencing our hunger and our fullness especially fullness because we have parts that talk us into continuing eating even though we're full or they just they're just ignoring the whole fullness piece anyway and we have parts that talk us into eating when we're not hungry and you know all that kind of stuff too. So I think that just doing intuitive eating without having any concept of IFS you're working with your managers. You're still strengthening your manager parts. Mm-hmm. You're still going to be parts of you that don't necessarily turn it into a diet, but it is still very like, okay, now I have to check the hunger rating scale and make sure I'm starting eating at a three and I have to make sure I'm stopping at a seven. And I'm... there's just a lot of still, I think, a tendency to beef up the managers who are who are just going to approach intuitive eating from a, a, from a protective piece. And as much as they do have a principle on coping with your emotions with kindness, I think is what they call it. It's written by dietitians, you know, I mean, they're not therapists, you know, there's some decent coping skills in there, but it's not healing, right? Like they're, again, they're not trained therapists. They're not teaching you how to heal whatever it is that's kind of going on for your parts. And so again, I think when you do that work with IFS, so much of this kind of falls into place and you can just add intuitive eating as kind of a skill. Skill set on top of it. Again, to really, what does hunger actually feel like for me? What foods actually make me feel full, make me feel satisfied? What movement does my body like versus I have to go to the gym for two hours for, you know, whatever? I think when you're really doing the IFS piece, you're already doing a huge piece of intuitive eating and you're becoming more self led with your eating, which is, you know, essentially intuitive eating. And so then again, you can just sort of add some of the pieces onto from intuitive eating onto that, if that makes sense. Yeah,
0: it does make, it makes a lot of sense. And it's really putting words to, I thought about it a little bit differently. The way that I've always thought about intuitive eating, I found it really helpful for myself many years ago, well, a handful of years ago now, probably 10 or 12 or something. And Mm -hmm. I read the book and I had worked, I tried to work on my relationship with food prior to that, but it definitely was the thing that made things click. And yeah, I have always kind of said like intuitive eating for me is kind of a framework for freedom and permission and choice. And like within that model, like a few years later, I was in a preventive cardiology clinic and I eat some portion plant-based. I've never been rigid about it, but it's all within this umbrella and framework of freedom and self-trust and figuring out. I even once, I never dieted again, but I even once, I'm like almost embarrassed to admit I did like this three-day reset thing with this beach body thing. And it's like, But I did it. And I was like, at the end of the day, I was like, I'm still hungry. I'm going to eat more. Like I did it from a place of self trust. And yeah, I was like, I'm just gonna experiment. And that was probably the only well, I guess my like whole food plant based was sort of an experiment too. I was like, we'll see. But Mm -hmm. this framework, that's so interesting. And it makes a lot of sense. This idea of intuitive eating can become manager led, which I think I see a lot with clients where they're like then so anxious and still just not sure how to do it and what does this look like? And they're not getting into their body from that self, what IFS would call self-energy place. For me, that wasn't the case. I was able to get into self-trust with food pretty Mm -hmm. readily after reading the book. But I think what I did is I had just other ways that I was really protecting and that's where the overworking comes in and like an evolution, right? But there was more deeper levels to unlock for
1: sure. Absolutely. And I think that, again, I think the beauty of IFS is that like, you have to understand why parts are turning to food, why parts are restricting, like you have to, yeah. in order to really, again, because, you know, it's like, once you get underneath that emotional eating piece, and once you kind of heal that exile, like that emotional eater does not have to, doesn't have to do its job anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. I was, I had a, a podcast episode where I had somebody come on to just do a live coaching call and She, oh, did you hear that? Okay. She had this experience of when we started, she had two parts that she kind of wanted to look at. She had sort of the, you know, again, air quotes, healthy eater. And she had, you know, like the junk food eater. And she, like her sense of this junk food eater was kind of like this rebellious party part that was just like, "Hmm," you know. And when we got into it, she discovered that it was actually like, I think it was like a nine-year-old, who was really reacting to kind of food scarcity when she was younger and this feeling of like, I don't matter because these are the foods that I really love and everybody seems to eat them before I get to them. And so therefore I don't matter. And so when we were able to heal that, it was like, you know, the protectors are like, great, I don't have to do this anymore. And again, when we're just really focusing on the food and our behaviors around the food, we're not getting to any of that stuff. And that's where the healing is. And that's where the change comes.
0: Right, right. It's so often traditional approaches to behavior change or exactly. certainly behavior change and weight management, but even eating disorder treatment many yeah, times, absolutely. right, which is, absolutely. which is rooted in behavior change because we're trying to get people to eat regularly and not skip right. meals and all of that. it misses the, the root cause and we don't actually understand it. So then people are just left with that frustration of like, I want to eat well, I want to, whatever that looks like for them. And I have this part that keeps pulling me out of it. And yeah, I yeah. definitely listened. I've listened to a number of your episodes, and I did listen to that one. And it's different for everyone, right? Like someone yes. else might have had their part that felt more rebellious or was having a hard time. Yeah, yeah, could be different, certainly probably would be have some different motivations. Although, yeah, probably. that's why we know food insecurity or food scarcity. Like, I think in her case, it was sort of like, it Was just the food was available, but it was just the way it was presented, right. felt really exactly bad to that yes. nine year old. Yes, but yes. still, like it's real. Yeah. That was real for, for that her. was very and... real.
1: Yeah, and I think one of the things that happens a lot, just thinking back to like other examples of this, because you're right, it's different for everybody. Like, and, and this is what I love about IFS, just ask the part, right? Because we all, like every other type of therapy, at least any that I've ever known we're kind of surmising why we're doing what we're doing. And with IFS, it's like, well, let's just ask the part. And the parts, like, we have no idea. We had no idea that that's what this part was doing. And so yeah. we have parts that are stuck in the past. And so very often we have rebellious eating parts. And so, like, I've had clients who are eating, are kind of binge eating in rebellion against parents who aren't even alive anymore, but our parts don't know that, right? And so it's like, yeah, we can just focus on that behavior, you know, the binge eating behavior and we can, you know, do all the CBT stuff that we've all been trained on doing, but it's not going to work. It's not going to work, yeah. Um, at yeah. least not long term. So you have to right. understand why these parts are doing this. And it could very well be for a reason that you have no idea, like you're not even not even close to, to aware of and the so other thing us. that strikes me is like, yeah, we've talked so much
0: about, and I do too, like challenging the diet mentality and getting out of that. And that could very well be, and often is, you know, mental or behavioral restriction prompts binge eating, but it's certainly not uncommon for people to be like, I really don't think I'm doing that anymore, but they're still going to food. And so that exactly speaks to what you're saying, which is like that frustration. I think sometimes because providers, myself included, are trained to think like this is the primary cause. And I don't know how what percentage of the time that's causing binge eating versus other, right. But as a numbers person, I, you know, I don't know that we can know that for sure, but it can really lead to a lot of frustration for people of like, I'm doing the work and I'm, yes. and I'm still experiencing, I'm not experiencing the outcome that I want yet. And that could be a really good invitation to this work. That's
1: right. And I think you you bring up an excellent point. And I think very similar to that, I feel like there is this message out there there's a really good book that I like that is that talks about sort of you know, the damages of diet culture and all that kind of stuff. And, and this part is written by a dietitian. And her whole thing is that like emotional eating isn't a thing. It, it doesn't actually it's not it doesn't exist. And it's really ju- what we call emotional eating is just a response to dieting. It's just a response to restriction. And there's this whole mis- There's, there's another message out there about how binge eating is only a response to restriction. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not they, we have parts that use binge eating to numb our systems to completely kind of shut us down and zone us out. And yes, restriction is very often a piece of that. But that's not the only thing. And so I think people, when they hear those messages and they go, oh, great, I'll just I'll stop the restriction. I'll stop the dieting. I'll stop the whatever. And all this is going to fall into place. And it doesn't because that's not the whole picture very often. I mean, again, it can be a big piece of it for sure, but it's very often not the whole picture. And we again, we have parts that turn to these behaviors for various reasons And they don't necessarily have anything to do with whether we're restricting or not. And so I think that frustrates me that that message is out there. And
0: yes, for sure. And sometimes those people end up, we're not going to pathologize weight gain, right? But sometimes people end up just continuing to gain weight and people, and I've always kind of said, like, I can't tell people what they're comfortable with, right? But often people are like, I'm not comfortable with that for whatever reason. They're scared about how it'll impact their health or or they're just, who knows, right? For whatever reason, right, right. But it's this message that, like, that's your only option is to lean into intuitive eating, per se, or diet mentality. And that's the the good news is there are other options for understanding that behavior. That's a complicated one, but I'm having
1: a lot of fun in this conversation. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, again, you bring up a really good point when you're doing just intuitive eating, you know, say somebody who just picks it off the shelf, they don't have a, they don't have a background in mental health. They've never been in therapy and they're just trying to do intuitive eating. It's very possible because I've had people come to me and go, I did intuitive eating and it didn't work because I couldn't stop eating. Again, you've kind of given these parts permission to just eat with reckless abandon, Which is different than, you know, trying to work on the habituation, which we talk about in intuitive eating. And these are parts that just took over and hijacked you. And they're like, hey, I'm in the driver's seat and I am not giving that back to those restricting parts. So forget it. So of course it doesn't work. And then they get frustrated because, you know, either they feel out of control and or they're gaining weight along with that, which feels terrible. If you're not doing the emotional piece, which again, to me, doing IFS with that is, the best way of doing it, but it can be kind of this like free for all that never, that feels like it never ends, which is not the intention of intuitive eating. And again, it's like, how do you put a book out there and a model out there and and teach everybody how to use it perfectly? Like you can't do that. Right. So sure, right. Um, I, it's a great tool, but it's, you know, for some people it's, it's just harder because they're again, because their parts just run with it.
0: Yeah. It's kind of how the parts use the tool. Right. Absolutely.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly.
0: Yeah. I'm hoping that other people are having the aha moments that I'm having, because I think hopefully it'll give people a lot of hope, right? If they've used a combination of these tools and haven't gotten to where they want to get yet.
1: Right, right, right. Exactly. If you're somebody out there who tried intuitive eating and it didn't work, like number one, you're not alone. You're absolutely not alone. And number two, for some people, for a lot of people, it's just harder. It's just hard It's hard. And it's hard to trust yourself. And Mm -hmm. so I mean, that's a huge piece that it's hard to turn that we're so used to diet culture, like diet culture has set up a problem that only they can solve, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you can't trust yourself with food. So you have to do what we tell you to do. Because if you're left to your own devices, well, you're just gonna binge until you can't move anymore, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I've had numerous people say to me, I have no idea how to eat. And it's like, eating isn't really that complicated. It's not that complicated. We've made it super complicated, but it's really not. It's like, what do you like? (laughs) What feels good in your body? You know, I eat a variety of foods. That's kind of it. That's kind of it really, you know, unless you have medical problems that really need to be more focused than that. Like it doesn't have to be super complicated, but we've been taught we need to be focusing on calories and micros and macros and all that kind of stuff. And nobody knows what the hell they're doing with any of that stuff if you don't have a degree in it. And so people feel like, number one, I can't trust myself around food and I have no idea how to eat. And again, diet culture has absolutely set that up as a problem that they can solve for you. So the idea of not having that is terrifying to people. And so, again, that's when those managers come into play and and potentially turn intuitive eating into a regimen to follow, which is not how it's intended to be. But it's understandable how you have parts that would do that because it's comfortable. They don't trust themselves to right. lean into
0: yeah right probably those younger exiled parts who at some point did know how to eat intuitively. and in, I guess I'm putting in quotes but it doesn't need to like eat intuitively right, <laughs> right. At, at some point all of us knew how to do that and at we some did. point in our life it was yes. taken away at different phases given our history but you actually have to get embodied and get in touch with yourself at younger ages really I've never really thought about it in that way but you actually <laughs> do you have to that's a good, I guess that's a question I have. Like, do you have <laughs> to? So I'm like, I
1: don't know if I did when I did intuitive eating. I don't feel like I did, but maybe I did. <laughs> maybe I, did. I, I don't. Yeah. I mean, maybe <laughs> I think that a lot of our parts that have learned to turn to food are young parts because mm-hmm. as we're kids, what other options do we have? Mm-hmm. Right. Like, we don't have other coping skills. We don't have resources. And so food yeah. is one of the few things that little kids can have that is enjoyable. That again, can, that's comforting, that's soothing, or that's numbing or any of those things. So very often our eating parts are kid parts. So we do kind of have to get in touch with those. But you're right, I think it's more about healing those parts and just bringing yourself on board. I have a client who always refers to it as being on board. And I love that. Um, And it's just, and and just having that self available. So you're right. We are all born as intuitive eaters and hit like three, four, five, whatever. We start learning that food has a meaning um, and bodies are more valued than others. And we start taking in those messages. But before that, I mean, think about it. Kids, they know when they're hungry. They stop when they're full. They know what they want. They throw the food on the floor that they don't want. Like, you know, they know, they know what they're (laughs) doing. (laughs) They know what they're doing. So we absolutely have that ability. And Mm -hmm. it's just kind of stripping away all the stuff that's been thrown on top of that. And, you know, Mm -hmm. in my mind and stripping that back and just being able to sort of go, yes, I know, I know, I know what I like. I know what I like. I know what feels good to me. And again, that might be you might have to do some specific work on that to really focus on being aware when you eat different foods of of how it feels to you.
0: Yeah. But those statements, I know what I like and I know what feels good to me with food and with other things. Right. Like, it's yeah, getting in touch with all of that. Is so essential. And that's that self trust piece of just like. Exactly.
1: Yeah, exactly. Which is, again, if you're just picking up a book and trying to get to that with a book, that's really hard. That's really hard.
0: Yeah. Um, Without a trusted guide to say, yeah, and I. For the frustration, because people can get really frustrated. I don't know myself. You know, I don't know how to eat, but also I don't know what I like. I don't know myself.
1: Yeah. And and I think it's also like I had somebody who came to me because she was in another group that was doing intuitive eating, but the person who was running it, their way of doing it was to like, let's bring all of your fear foods into the house all at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that was understandably overwhelming. And so even sometimes if you've done it with somebody, maybe their approach to it isn't the right approach for you.
0: Right, um, right.
1: So, you know, I, I I would say don't give up on it but, you know, try to find somebody who's using it in a way that resonates more with you because sometimes, and, you know, and again, and not to, you know, everybody, everybody can be helpful with this, but, you know, a dietitian yeah. is going to have a different view of it than somebody with a therapist background. It's just a different way of working with it. And so mm-hmm. people need different things, um, different teaching so, styles, different exactly. examples. Yeah. And exactly.
0: Yeah. I, I, in the social media, you see that a lot, right. Which is like, we should never keep foods out of our house. And I've always said like, and I've, Having this podcast is really, I mean, I felt like I was healed up and I'm like, oh, it makes you think and it makes you like, am I really doing this for the right reasons? But yeah, connecting with like my reasoning for keeping some foods out of the house and some in like feels right to me. And that's okay. And I was going to say to make those decisions.
1: Exactly. There are foods that I don't have in my house, but I, but I also like, you know, pretty much give myself permission to when you want it, you get to go get it. And I don't feel Mm -hmm. like there's anything that I don't have in my house that I'm keeping things out. Because, oh, my God, if it's in the house, I'm going to eat it to death. And, uh, you know, and I don't feel deprived right. because it's not in my house. So right. I think you have to look at all of those nuances. It cannot be a hard and fast rule like that just doesn't work. And mm-hmm. and there are times in my life when I know like the stress level goes up and it's like, OK, we definitely need to keep the Ben and Jerry's out for a bit because it's mm-hmm. it's going to be too easy to go to that. Then I'm not going to check in with my parts to see what's going on now. And so I want, I want the option to be able to do that. And if my parts are really like, no, we want the Ben and Jerry's, then we'll run down the street and go get the Ben and Jerry's. It's not a big deal. (laughs) All of that is individual. All of yeah. that is individual. Again, not having those hard and fast rules, I think is so incredibly important. We have like diet culture and we have anti-diet culture and it's like anti-diet culture can be just as extreme as diet culture, right? And it's like, I, I you know, when I kind of went to sort of the health at every size intuitive eating side, I went like way too hard on that end and kind of fell into that piece as we do. Mm -hmm. Um, But it can be kind of shaming Mm -hmm. if you're, you know, like, yeah, but I don't like, I still want to eat and again, quote unquote healthy. And you're getting these messages about, you know, like there's somebody that I follow who's um, a psychologist and, you know, she's very much, you know, on the anti-diet side, which is fine, but she had a a post on social media that was like, you know, what do you do when you want to have ice cream for breakfast? And it was just a video of her going and getting ice cream out and eating it for breakfast. And I thought, okay, so yeah, there are parts that had a very strong reaction to that. And some of those are (laughs) probably super diety parts, right? But then part of me was like, are we not even going to question that? Like, are we not (laughs) even going to wonder why? Because I'm just thinking, I mean, I'm 52. So for me to have ice cream for breakfast is not going to feel good. Other people, it's not going to bother them at all, but it's not going to feel good for me. Do I want ice cream for breakfast? Because I had a dream about my mom who's not with me anymore last night and I woke up really sad. Am I, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, we're not even going to check in with the part that wants that and see what's going on with that. So yeah, I you think know, because it,
0: it, it's like, so yeah, I'm totally with you. And actually IFS, I've talked about this for a couple of years, the polarization in the health space and how un, mostly unproductive, well, not mostly, I, I yeah, understand yeah. IFS has helped me understand really why I think people are like protector led in their it's social justice right like so much of this is yeah. reclaiming social justice and so it makes a ton of sense i certainly from people in the medical field i think making the the messages harder to, for the medical field to understand, and that can be less productive, but it also creates that shaming of providers who might not use the perfect language or might be still on a learning journey. Right. And it just creates like, this is the way (laughs) I always think of the Mandalorian, like this is the way. (laughs) And it's like, Oh, well, (laughs) no, there's
1: not one way. (laughs) Exactly. 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 And I do think, you know, because inevitably, you know, we still have parts that want to lose weight and, yeah. you know, we, we have to get to know those parts. Like there's nothing wrong with having those parts. Like I, mm-hmm. I still have parts that pop up sometimes about that. Um, And it's just like, let's kind of sit with that. You hear people on, on the anti-diet side and I'm not a physician. What do I know? But you know, you hear people say there's absolutely nothing. There's no medical condition that's related to weight. There's no proven medical condition that's related to weight. And it's like, okay, maybe that's true. I don't know. There's a lot of correlations, um, which is not causation. I get that. But I also can understand when somebody says to me, my knees hurt more, my feet hurt more, my sleep apnea comes back. Like, that makes sense to me, right? And so... No, I'm not gonna help you. I'm not gonna work on weight loss with you because I've done that, it doesn't work. But I, I do think you have to get to the point where all foods are are on the table. There's no good or bad. You know, I get to choose what I want to choose and I'm in touch with my parts that are making those choices. And then if you sort of realize, you know what, when I eat more sugar and you know, like I don't feel good or I notice that I am putting weight on or whatever. And so maybe one of the phrases that I really like from intuitive eating is for the most part, for the most part, I'm going to try to stay away from that because I feel better physically with that. That's a very Mm -hmm. different mindset than I can't have sugar because it's bad for me and I need to lose weight and you know, and so. You have to almost the pendulum has to swing to the other side of I've allowed myself to have whatever I want. And then I can really start tweaking how I want to eat. It's funny because people will say to me, like, Am I still allowed to have a salad? <laughs> like, yeah. is it okay that I like right. things like that? And it's like, yeah. absolutely. If you if you want to be a vegetarian, go ahead. As yeah. long as it's coming from a place of this is feels authentic to me, this this fits with my values and it makes my body feel good. Yep. If you're doing it because you know I'm trying to lose weight and I'm feeling lethargic and tired and whatever all the time, that's not good. It's like, why am I doing this? Yes, I tried to be
0: plant based in college for the 100% wrong reasons, and I was like, <laughs> I'm trying to convince myself, I'm like, it's because I had cholesterol, high cholesterol, which I 100% did, but that's not, what yeah, yeah, doing that. yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and like. Now, I move towards that. I'm always kind of moving towards more whole plant foods and always who knows what percentage I fall, but I know 100% why I'm doing it. And but yeah, only I was like, only you can know. So yeah. So our intrinsic motivation question is what is one thing you have truly intrinsic motivation for? So you do it for the inherent satisfaction of the behavior, enjoy it, find it challenging or satisfying in its own right.
1: I, back in high school, middle school, high school, I played the flute and I absolutely loved it. And I was, so I grew up in the Midwest, I grew up in Ohio. And so like marching bands are the thing Mm -hmm. in the Midwest. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I was, I was lucky enough to go to a high school that had a phenomenal music program and It catches me at the intrinsic motivation piece, but because I have parts that really love performing and I I have parts that really love making people happy with that and just seeing people enjoying themselves, you know? Yeah. So like, I still remember sitting there playing in band and just getting goosebumps from the music. We all have those pieces that just really touch us and it's, ugh, it's just amazing. And so mm-hmm. Like I would, I would say I wish there were marching bands for grown ups. Like I wish and apparently I there is it. There in California, I think it started in a group in the UK that is a, called like the worst band in the world, something like that. And it's uh-huh. just literally like anybody can join people like me who played in high school and they show uh-huh. up with their instruments and it doesn't matter whether you can play or not. You just play to play. There's a group that does uh-huh. it in California, too, but there's there's not one here, which is very upsetting. But I also like a few years back and I'm just getting back into it, like joined a community choir that like we sing rock music and we do like a concert with a live band at the end of each season. And it's super fun. Mm -hmm. And I was telling you beforehand that like, I'm starting to take guitar lessons, which are really hard, but (laughs) yeah. So music, I guess, is the thing that for me is just, I, I don't listen to it because I don't have much of a commute anymore. And so that was always my time in the car was listening to music. Like as much as I love podcasts it's like, if I have time to listen to something, it's going to be music. There's just things that brings out emotions that nothing else seems to get to. And being able to, thankfully, I have, I would not call myself talented, but I'm not untalented when it comes to music. And so thankfully, I feel like I'm able to, to do that in a way that feels good to me, that I feel like I can participate with other people. And it's not a huge, embarrassing failure.
0: Um <laughs> that is so, so cool yeah. yeah yeah it sounds like it's mostly truly intrinsic like you would do it no matter yes. what yeah there may be yes. some oh, external yeah. like gain from it in terms of like feeling good and feeling like ooh they said that was good and that yeah. um but like you would do it if no one was watching like you would play or you would connect or you would absolutely. listen to music absolutely absolutely
1: yes, it's funny absolutely. too
0: because my journey towards I guess embodiment in some ways has included starting adult tap dancing and I danced growing up, but not tap. And I'm I'm really in it this week because my daughter is five. She dances and I was on this email list for this um, studio and they were like, do you want to, do you want to join this six week tap class? So I joined it. I loved it. And our recital is uh, tomorrow. So, Oh, wow. Yeah. So we had rehearsal this week and I've been using IFS to kind of notice like the parts of me that show up that showed up when I was dancing that were very concerned about like how I look and I actually felt like incredibly awkward on Thursday the re- rehearsal and I'm really hoping tomorrow I can just lean into having more fun but I'm also just letting it be what it is cuz I do I love practicing like I would do it if no one was watching it's yeah. uh, it challenges my brain but I just there's there's the music element to it mm-hmm. so it's so cool there's something about it's definitely helping me reconnect with some parts of me that
1: That's awesome. Um,
0: Loved dancing, but wasn't really able to do it in the emotive embodied way I would have liked at the time.
1: And see, that's where IFS can be so incredibly helpful, right? Because with the choir that I sing in, like you can do, again, it's a non-audition community choir. So like we have people who have amazing voices. We have people who are tone deaf, quite frankly, and it's like, everybody's welcome. Right. Mm -hmm. But there's always opportunities for solos. And so like probably my second or third season, I auditioned and it was literally one of the scariest things I've ever done in my life. Like there's nothing scarier than standing there singing in front of people. You've got nothing to hide behind. And I remember, and I only, probably only because our choir was so small. (laughs) Like I, you know, I ended up with a solo and I remember going out, at that concert and it was the first song of the whole set list. And I remember walking out there and thank God had the IFS in my back pocket because I was like, all of my parts that are terrified, go, you don't have to be here. You don't have to be here. Go (laughs) sit down, just leave the auditorium. You don't have to be here. And I was like really drawing on those parts that are like, again, that I like to perform and I like to be up there and I like to, you know, the response from people. And I mean, it wasn't perfect. You know, I'm kind of sorry I listened to it afterwards, but <laughs> it was like at least, at least it happened. Right. But that's where IFS can be great. You can kind of go, you can kind of get those parts that are feeling you know, a little funky about it and just say, you don't have to go. You don't have to be there. You yeah, know, I have parts I that this. really want to be on stage. Yeah, I got this. I can do this. Again, That's IFS so is cool. useful in every, in every, every scenario, <laughs> even finding, performing. <laughs> I'm
0: finding that to be very, very true. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Good for you. Good for Thank you. you. How fun. Is. It is
0: very fun. So our next question is from a should to a choose to. So this is integrated motivation in the theory of motivation that I'm obsessed with self-determination theory. Um, What's one example of a behavior that was always a should for you that maybe you struggled to do, but you figured out a way to do it more consistently because you value it. It's part of your identity, even if you Mm -hmm. don't necessarily always love it.
1: The first thing that comes into my mind is always getting the message when I was younger that I'm too sensitive And so there was the message of you shouldn't have these feelings right now. You shouldn't be expressing these feelings right now, which, of course, as an adult, I know was way was all about them and not me. But being able to be comfortable with all of that, like knowing that, I mean, I am an emotional person. I am the person that cries and everything that's even remotely sad on TV. Like I, you know, I'm like watching Survivor and I cry, like it's ridiculous. Yeah, same pretty much. Yeah. yeah. And, but just being completely okay with that, you know, my daughter, my daughter's not like that. She's not as emotional as I am. She's 16 and she looks at me like I'm nuts and I'm like, I don't care. So it really is something that, again, you should be keeping this under wraps. What you're doing is wrong. I really do find that put your vulnerability out there because people respond to that in a really good. And that was one thing that kind of even got me through like the singing piece. When you're up there and you're terrified, if you're doing a terrible job, whatever people recognize when somebody's being vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And yes, there are people whose parts are going to. You know, make fun of that to take advantage of it, whatever. But for the most part, people respond to that in a really lovely way.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: so when you can just say, I don't know what I'm doing right now, or I have no idea what's going on right now, I need your help, or I'm feeling I'm really struggling right now, like people, again, not everybody, but most people Mm -hmm. are going to respond to that in a really lovely way. And so just putting that out there, because I think I had a lot of I should always know what I'm doing. And I should look perfect all the time. And I should look put together. And to be able to say, I don't know. I have no idea. I don't know. I yeah. think it's, that's been a huge shift for me over the years. Yeah.
0: Showing up authentically and choosing. Yeah. It, even if you sound like you feel good doing that, cause it does feel good to just be ourselves. Yeah. But it's like, yeah. yeah, it's still scary and there's still that risk there, but I think we're really making a case for adult cre- creative activities. Everyone's just like so supportive because they're like, adults are dancing. Like, <laughs> good job. <And laughs> no, it's like, it's so fun in that way. It's awesome. And it's like kind of supposed to be, I did it last year too, and it's supposed to be like kind of cringy. One of the people that are in the class with me, her daughter's like, you guys are a little cringy. <laughs> and I'm like, that's kind of awesome.
1: Let's lean so into that. I shouldn't man. look too yes. cool because I got to look. <laughs> A <laughs> little, little tiny bit cringy. A little them. bit cringy. I love that. I love that. My guitar instructor was just like he said something about well, you know the the performance in June, and I'm like, what performance? And he's like, oh, well, the music's in. and I was like, absolutely not I'm not doing that like maybe, maybe a year from now maybe yeah. a year from now I'm like listen I like I've, I've gotten up to the point of being able to sing in front of people like don't ask me to play the guitar yet I can't yeah. <laughs> no <Maybe> one day, <laughs> <Maybe> one day. <laughs> But yeah I love that it I love so it fun. that's awesome well I hope you have a great time I hope your parts let you have a great time.
0: I I hope so too. I think either way I'll learn from it, but I'm, I'm really hoping I'm envisioning being able to just like have fun. And I will say I had fun on Thursday too. And that was my first proposal, which was just yesterday, but I had fun (laughs) then too. It was just, I was like, why can't I get this awkward smile off my face? (laughs) Like, Go away. Impression management parts. You're fine. (laughs) You're making things (laughs)
1: worse. Right. Exactly. You're not helping. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's so
0: funny. Yes. Well, and this is kind of a related. So our final question is, I feel like we're touching on it, but a main part of my mission on this podcast, um, you know, helping more people reclaim trust with their bodies so they can live Mm -hmm. more courageous and connected lives. Can you share... An example or two we already have, but I don't know if there's any others that you want to share where having more trust with your body has allowed you to be more courageous and connected. I feel
1: like we've already touched on a lot of that, but physically speaking, I would say probably years ago, and it's been like 20 years, like I kind of stumbled into a martial arts studio and four years later came out with a black belt. So that That was was like a huge, yeah, that was a huge, never in my life would I have ever thought that would have happened. Never never, 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 never. I was actually writing my dissertation on like self-defense for women because I had taken a self-defense class after college. That was amazing. It was taught by a social worker and she had a black belt in Taekwondo. And I just loved her approach because she was talking about the fact that you can teach women the moves all you want, but if they truly don't believe that they have a right to be, to defend themselves, if they don't believe they are worth defending and if they're you know, as women we're really taught not to be violent or aggressive like we have to overcome that in order to defend ourselves and i loved her approach and so for whatever reason i decided to like write my dissertation on like how self-defense for women can help like trauma survivors things like that the only self-defense class i could find at the time was in a martial arts studio so i went in and of course i got the the sales pitch on you should stick around and whatever and i was like oh, whatever But I I absolutely, I loved it. I loved it. I love, I've never been that strong in my whole life. I've never been that fit in my whole life. And I absolutely loved it. Loved it. So, and I would have never in a million years, like I was not an athlete. I was not any of those things. Totally stepping outside my comfort zone and having an amazing experience with it. So that does sound yeah, very that's cool. a Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And again, it was like 20 years ago and it it would hurt way too badly to go back to that now, but um, <laughs> it was a lot of fun back then. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough.
0: I'm picturing like the block shopping and
1: that sounds painful. Uh, uh, yeah, it's painful. <laughs> Getting thrown around is not fun, but uh-huh. yeah, it was, it was really amazing. So very cool. Very, very cool. You mentioned
0: that you never had an eating disorder, but did you, mm. I mean, you're, a woman living in the U S right? you struggle with your relationship with food.
1: Absolutely. I, I was always, I was always an emotional eater for sure. And I loved food and I actually felt terrible because I couldn't diet. I, you know, I mean, I didn't, thankfully I didn't, I didn't have a dieting family. Um, I mean, I do feel like I have, I had some protective pieces like my family, because we pretty much all have thin privilege, nobody was dieting. So Mm -hmm. thankfully, and my friends, I mean, my friends were, but not super hardcore. Mm -hmm. And so thankfully I escaped a lot of that, but certainly always thought I was too big and always thought my body was wrong and, you know, got specific messages about that from a young age, but I just couldn't like, From an IFS perspective, I now know that it's like I had parts that were just, there's no way you're not going to restrict food. You're just not going to do it. So I would try. And then, you know, my parts were like, nope, absolutely not. We love to eat, forget it. And so Mm -hmm. I had, I had parts that felt like a lot of shame because I wasn't dieting, which is what everybody else was doing. So I kind of had this other weird experience, but always thought I was too big and always thought I needed to change. And. All that stuff. So yeah. fell into it, you know. Not thank God, not as much as other people, but certainly. How you can't escape it. You can't
0: escape. But yeah, it. it can be so. I mean, it's so. It's all on a continuum. And yeah, yeah. yeah. I always. Yeah. I had a lot of shame too. Like I certainly could not like diet for long. <laughs> like my binging started like real quick when I yes, start. Yeah. Like my <laughs> twelve hundred calorie, fifteen hundred calorie, which is ironically what we were teaching you know of course healthy and I would always be like and I'd always eat more if I ran like it didn't matter like it was the restrictive mind
1: I had parts that were like nope nope not doing, not that. doing it <laughs> <laughs> so yes you can definitely yeah. relate to that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the takeaway from that is it doesn't matter what you're doing it's considered wrong Right, yeah. like even if you're dieting, or if you're not dieting, if you're trying to diet, like whatever it is, it's wrong. It's so, like, you no, know, it's wrong. all just wrong. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, pretty much <laughs> helpful. Yeah. yeah, super helpful. Yeah, easy way <laughs> to live. Yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs> oh. Kim, where can people learn more about the work you're doing? Connect with you. They definitely should listen to your
1: podcast. Yeah. So my website kind of has pretty much everything on it. So my website is yourweightisnotyourworth.com. So there's mm-hmm. like, a, like a work with me page that kind of has everything on it. But I have groups that I do. I, I do groups specifically for therapists and practitioners because I do feel like we need our own space with this stuff. Um, and then groups for non-therapists. And I have this little, um, IFS, like I call them like eating parts, cheat sheets to help you get to understand what parts are like. I have a free e-course on, you know, how to stop dieting, why dieting is not great and how to stop.
0: Well, your podcast is the emotional. Oh, in my
1: podcast, I always forget about that. The emotional, the the name of it. (laughs) Yeah. The Emotional Eating and Everything Else podcast. Yes, yeah. I forgot about that. So, yeah. and that's where that's all over the place, you know, where you can find podcasts. So, and then I'm on Instagram. I don't post a lot, but it's at Kim Daniel Society. But great. again, I'm not a huge poster. I just kind of post my podcast episodes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> all right. Well, this was really fun, and yeah, I really appreciate
1: you being here. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. It's been great. I love talking about these things. So. I appreciate the opportunity
0: and before we finish today's episode i have a really quick message from a special guest my daughter please review from my mom's podcast make
1: something for my mom's podcast please
0: thank you thank you for tuning in today your time is valuable and it means so much to me that you're here Despite the title of this podcast, many of our topics are not always easy. Change is hard and let's face it, life and truly looking inward at ourselves can be uncomfortable. That's why I'm grateful. Grateful for you and your willingness to listen, learn and keep an open mind. I invite you to learn more by going to drshawnhondorp.com or finding me on Instagram at psychology.of.wellness. If you're enjoying this podcast, It would be amazing if you could give it a review so more people can find it. Thanks, and I truly hope you have an energetic and inspired day.